Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are doing good. It is so great to see all of you here today. If you have your Bible, open it up to the book of Ruth. It's in the, New, it's in the Old Testament. Pretty early on in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, we're going to start a brand new series this morning that we're calling Redeemed. Redeemed, we're going to look at the entire story of Ruth. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do it a little different than what we normally do. We're just going to, to preach this narrative. We're going to go through the story verse by verse, and we are going to look at it and do our best to unpack it to see what the Holy Spirit would have for us through this book. It's a great book to preach through. I've actually preached through this uh, several years ago on a Wednesday night service, and um, I just feel like it, it, the Holy Spirit was saying, it's time to do it again, and um, I, I think that you are going to be blessed for it. So we're not gonna waste a whole lot of time. We're just gonna go ahead and jump right in to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter one, verse one. We'll read a verse, and we'll set some context here for you. It says this, it says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. This story takes place in the time of the judges. It's, it's a time when Israel had no king. It was the period of time uh, right after Joshua, who, if you remember, Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then Joshua brought them into the promised land. And so it's this period of time between Joshua and their first king, Saul, and it was kind of a time of chaos. There was a lot of ups and downs in the nation of Israel, um, and it, it, this was really one of Israel's darkest times times in their nation's history. It was a time marked by division, cruelty, civil war, injustice. There was a lot of infighting. There was immorality. And just for the most part, it was just kind of marked with national disgrace. It, it was a very, very difficult time. The children of God at this, at this time were marrying people from other nations, from pagan nations, people who were serving other gods, and it was just a really, really dark, difficult time during the, this time of the judges. And so what would happen is every so often, um, every so often the, uh, the, a judge would rise up and he would begin to rule and lead and it would sort of right the ship a little bit, but, but quickly it would revert back to uh, this time of chaos. And so that's what we have going on. Um, I feel like my mic is a little hot. I feel like I'm super loud. If we, could, uh, if we could turn me down a little bit, Pastor Dan, if you could help me out with that. I feel like I'm about to echo up here. So this is what's, this is what's happening with the book of Judges. And so that's the season that we're in. This attitude is summarized in Judges chapter 21, verse 24. It's the very, very last verse in the book of Judges, and, and it says this. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so this is the backdrop for this story. This is what's going on in the time of the Judges. And, and while the Judges, the book of Judges, is sort of a look at what's happening on the national sector, the book of Ruth sort of zooms in and puts one single family under a microscope. And so we get to look at this, this one family during the time of 
the judges. And um, so during this time, uh, there is a famine in the town of Bethlehem. There's a famine in the town of Bethlehem. Now, most of the time when there's a famine in Scripture, it usually indicates some sort of judgment. And it seems like that's probably what's going on right now, like, like, like God is, is trying to get the attention of his people because just 40 miles away in the town of Moab, there seems to be plenty of food, and, and the famine doesn't seem to be affecting them at all. And so um, there's a famine in Bethlehem. There's no food. 40 miles away in Moab, there is a food. There is food. Verse 2 says this, the man's name, the, the, the man who was the husband and the father of the family that we're looking at, his name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. They settled in the land of Moab. Now, I don't know if they were going there to settle or if they were just trying to escape the famine for a couple of years, but whatever happened, they ended up planting roots. They ended up going to school there. They ended up starting a career there, and they settled in a place that God had never designed the people of God to live. Now, this man, Elimelech, was just a regular guy. He was just kind of an ordinary guy, and he was living in Bethlehem. And before we go any further, we want to take special note of the irony in, in all of this that's going on. And so just a little bit more context to what's happening. Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. Now, if you know anything about scripture, you know that Bethlehem is very significant in scripture in that um, King David came from Bethlehem. It's, Bethlehem is called the, the, the city of David. And more importantly than that, Jesus came from Bethlehem. We all know about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So at this time, Bethlehem hadn't reached that level of notoriety, but it was coming. And the name Bethlehem, the house of bread, is, is very prophetic in that for, for years and years and years, the name was prophetically declaring to the entire world that Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, is going to come from the house of bread. But at this point in history, we're looking at Bethlehem, and there is no bread in the house. There's a famine in the land, and it's kind of a dire situation. Then we look at Elimelech the husband and the father of this story. Elimelech, his name means my God is king. I love that name. It's strong. My God is king. Daily, he is declaring my God is king through his name. And, and daily, people are declaring my God is king through saying his name. It's just a good, strong name with, with a lot of deep spiritual implications. Unfortunately, in this story, Elimelech never acts like his God is king, which we're going to see more clearly. So we have Bethlehem, the house of bread. There is no bread. We have Elimelech. His name means my God is king, but he doesn't act like it. And then we have Naomi. Her name means sweetness or my God is sweet. I love this name. We have a daughter named Naomi and she totally lives up to it. She is sweet. She is kind. She is tender. I mean, she is the best. She is the girl who, if you're sick, she'll come and give you a back rub or she'll rub your arm and she'll take care of you. She is just sweet and precious in every single way. And so we have Naomi, my God is sweet or, or sweetness, who through the end of this chapter, you're going to see, she tells her friends to don't 
to not call her Naomi because she doesn't believe God is sweet and she doesn't feel sweet. She tells her friends to call her Mara, which means bitter, because she, in essence, is saying, I'm a bitter, old, angry widow. Nothing's going good for me. I'm not sweet. Don't call me Naomi. So we got the house of bread. There is no bread. We got Elimelech, my God is king, who doesn't act like it. And we got Naomi, whose name means sweetness. And she says, call me bitter. So Elimelech and Naomi, they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Malon means sickly, okay? His name literally means sickly, right? He's probably not playing football if he's sickly. And then we got Kilion, whose name means dying, okay? So that's the names of their sons, sickly and dying. Some of you are angry with what your parents named you. You're like, man, you could have done a little better. Um, but at least you're not Malon and Kilion. At least your parents aren't saying, hey, have you met my daughter sickly? Have you met my son dying? Like, they got a great future, you know. Um, but that's what's going on. So, so this group of people in this time, it's just a really messed up Situation. These are messed up people, that's for sure. But the good news is that God cares about messed up people in messed up situations. Amen? God cares about messed up people in messed up situations. I know there are many of you here this morning, and, and you are here in church. You're surrounded by God's people, and that's great. And, and you are in the community of God, and that's great. And, and you may even sort of have your, your um, Elimelech hat on, and you know the right things to say. You say, my God is king, and that's awesome. But the reality is, many of you here today are experiencing a little bit of a messed up situation. You yourself personally may be messed up. And though, though like I said, all of you are here, that's great. Your, your behaviors are messed up. Your thoughts are messed up. Your actions are messed up. Your attitudes are messed up. Your decisions are messed up. And I want you to know this morning that, that this sermon, this series is, is for you because God specializes in working in the lives of people who are messed up. That's what God does. God sent Jesus, his son, to come live in a messed up world to redeem a messed up situation and call a messed up people back to himself. This is the gospel story and this is what God is going to do in this situation as well. And so what happens is Elimelech is looking around at this dire situation. He sees that there's no food in Bethlehem. There's a famine. People are getting hungry. They're losing jobs and he has to make a decision. And so he looks around. He notices that over here in Moab, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of job opportunities, there's, there's potential for career advancement and wealth. And so, and so he looks around and he decides that he's going to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab. Well, the problem with that is Moab is no place for God's people whatsoever. The, the, the nation of Moab actually started as a result of a night of incest between Lot and his daughter when Lot got drunk. And so Moab was an evil, pagan, wicked place. In Moab, they worshiped the god Chemosh, who his name means destroyer. And they, um, one of their practices of worship involved um, a human sacrifice or burning babies uh, for, for Chemosh, the destroyer. And so Moab was no place for God's people. And Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, instead of looking to God for help, instead of praying, instead of gathering his family and other believers around, let's pray, let's ask God to intervene and do the miraculous. Let's um, lean on scripture that says trust in the Lord and, and let's really um, try to find guidance in what the Holy Spirit was saying. E e 
Elimelech looks at the economic situation. He says there's money there, there's food there, there's potential for career advancement there. That's where we're going to go. We're going to Moab. And we look at this and we sort of understand it. We see that he has an obligation to his family. He has an obligation to provide. He has an obligation to take care of them. His reasoning is completely understandable. There's no food in Bethlehem. There's food in Moab. So go. But just go take care of your family. It makes sense. It's not hard to justify this decision at all. Most likely he was thinking, we're just going to go relocate for a couple years. When, when the famine's over, we'll come back. But, but they end up settling there. It was really easy because Moab wasn't even that far away. It was just 40 miles. It was mostly downhill. It was just easy track, easy journey. They're going to go to Moab. They're going to take care of some things. But what we realize, what I've come to understand, is that most of the time, wrong decisions are the easiest ones to make. Most of the time, the wrong decisions are the easiest ones to make. Moab, or Elimelech, moves his family just 40 miles away to Moab. And in that journey, in that 40-mile trip, what he does is he completely steps outside of God's will for his life. And, and I think that a lot of us can relate to Elimelech. As we read stories like this and we try to see what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, we try to find where we fit in the story. And I think there's a lot of us that are like Elimelech. We come to church, we sing the songs, we say my God is king, we tell everybody the right things, the right words, but, but if a problem arises, we don't operate like our God is king. We know what to say. We say that, that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and last. He's the beginning of the end. He's the bread of life. And if a problem arises in my situation, I'm going to handle it on my own. That's how most of us act. We say Jesus is king, but we rarely behave like he is. And so what Elimelech, he doesn't talk to God about his decision. He decides to do what he thinks is best for his family and goes to Moab completely outside of God's will. And there are times where it is frustrating because we're living inside of God's will. We're living in Bethlehem and it feels pretty dry. It doesn't feel like great things are going great. But I want to tell you something this morning. It is so much better to stay in Bethlehem when it's dry than to move to Moab when things are going really well. Okay, it's better to stay in Bethlehem when it's dry because even though um, what God is doing doesn't always make sense to us, it always makes sense to him. Okay, if it doesn't feel right to us, it's always right with God because God is completely in control. And so what Elimelech does is when he steps outside of Bethlehem, when he leaves Bethlehem and goes to Moab, he steps outside of God's will for his life. And in the process, he essentially commits spiritual suicide because in Moab, they worship Chemosh. There's no other believers. There's no opportunity for him to grow spiritually, and so he's taking his family with him to Moab. There's some of you here this morning, and you're considering right now a move to Moab. You're thinking about going to Moab. You're, you're, you're on the verge of going through with a, a really bad decision, and it's going to have devastating consequences on your life. But the problem is you've justified it. You've thought through this logically, 
You feel like this is the smartest decision for you to make. It makes sense. Nobody's arguing with you because it just feels like this is the thing you should be doing. But the Holy Spirit has placed a check inside of your spirit. He's placed a check inside of your soul. And, and he's telling you right now, Moab is not the place for my people to dwell. I don't want you to go to Moab, but the only thing that's keeping you from going is the Holy Spirit's little, still, small voice trying to put a check in there, and, and you've done a really good job up to this point to ignore it, and you're getting ready to go through with this decision to move to Moab. Maybe you're here today, and you're dating somebody, and you're not married, and you're thinking about moving in together, and and, um, you know, you, you know what the Lord says, you know what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit's trying to get your attention, but you think, you know what, wouldn't it be better to, to move in for like a little bit of a practice session before we get married? That way we don't have to get divorced, and wouldn't it be worse for us to get divorced than to move in together? And, and you've totally justified this move to Moab, and God is telling you, don't move to Moab. That's not the place for my people to go. Maybe you're here this morning and you're on the verge of committing to a re a relationship with somebody who isn't a believer. And then you've justified this. You think, man, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to influence them. I'm going to bring them to church. I I'm going to share the Lord with them and they're going to get saved. And, 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 but that the Lord is telling you right now, like, do not step into that relationship. That relationship is going to take you to Moab. Don't do it. Listen to the still small voice of the Lord, but, but you've totally justified it. And you're on the verge of moving, moving to Moab. Maybe you're here and you feel the pressure to compromise your values or your morals just a little bit for career advancement, and, and, and it makes sense. Everybody else is doing it. You wouldn't be doing anything that is outside the normal business practices, but it's something that the Lord is telling you not to do. And, and you're, you're right now on the verge of moving to Moab. You're going to step out of Bethlehem. You're going to go to Moab, and you know that the Holy Spirit is telling you not to go. And, and we do this from time to time. Any of us, all of us, have felt the pressure to move to Moab because we think it's better there, because there's more opportunity there, because it makes sense for us in our career and our financial situation, but we have to consider the, the, um, the damage, we have to consider the, the negative implications in a move to Moab. I, I've heard um, men come to me and they justify a porn habit because at least they're not cheating on their spouse. At least they're still married. And so they, so they take the step from Bethlehem to um, Moab in, in this pornography habit and they've totally justified it. Listen, a move to Moab will always bring you pain. Let me say it again. A move to Moab will always bring you pain. It will always bring you pain. And maybe it doesn't happen immediately. Maybe it doesn't happen to you. Maybe it affects your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids. But a move to Moab will always bring you pain. And some of you know this because you've been there. Some of you know this because you're there right now. Some of you know this because you, you were going to go to Moab just for a little bit to check it out, to, 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 to like increase your stock a little bit, but you've ended up settling there, and now you can't get out. You know a move to Moab will always bring you pain. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Then Elimelech died. The husband and the father, he died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. Why did they move to Moab? So they wouldn't die. What happened? Elimelech died. Verse 4. The two sons married Moabite women. And so in this story, it goes from bad to worse because they knew that they didn't belong in Moab in the first place, but now these two um, Jewish boys, these two Hebrew boys, they marry pagan women who have grown up in, in a cult. 
These two women, they've grown up worshiping Chemosh. That, 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 that's who they are. That's who their family is. They've grown up in, in a pagan cult. And now these two Hebrew men marry these two Moabite women. This wasn't God's design for them. It wasn't his intention. It wasn't his best for them. God is able to redeem any mess up that we make, but this wasn't God's design for them. And so they've been married for 10 years. There's no children. We don't know why. This family is getting hit hard on all sides. The dad has died. The boys have married pagan women. Uh, you get this sense that their, their spiritual integrity is diminishing. They're beginning to compromise who they are and who they are spiritually. They're the only Christians in town. There's no grandbabies anywhere, even on the horizon. This family is on the verge of physical and spiritual extinction. And then what happens next, verse 5, is that both Malon and Kilion died this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. And so we get a sense of what's going on in this story. They move to Moab, all the men die, there's Naomi. Now she has two Moabite daughter-in-laws with her. So they bury, she buries her husband and her two sons. And at the end of this decade of disobedience, all she has is, is this room with three lonely widows and three Jewish graves. That's it. Everything else is gone. All hope is gone. There's a brutal honesty to this story. This is a dire situation. They thought it was bad in Bethlehem before. This is worse. There's nobody there to care for her. There's nobody there to watch out for her, provide. In this culture, in this situation, this would have been the worst situation imaginable to be without a husband, without sons, no way to take care of yourself or provide. When Elimelech moved to Moab, his family lost everything. Elimelech made the decision and Naomi paid the ultimate price. Be careful, be careful, be careful when you, take, when you consider that move to Moab because it will never affect just you. It'll never affect just you. Verse six, then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed the people in Judah by giving them good crops again, so Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab in return, and return to her homeland. And at, in verse 6, God is mentioned for the very first time in this story. And it's, it's cool how the author sort of puts this. Who Many believe the author is Samuel. But it's cool how he begins to design this. Because we need to know, we need to be crystal clear who the hero of this story is. It's not Ruth. It's not Naomi. It's not Boaz, who we're going to meet next week. And Boaz is awesome. Um, in, in fact, um, many people refer to, or Jesus is referred to by theologians as our glorious Boaz. So Boaz looks a lot like Jesus. But it's not even Boaz who's the hero of the story. It's God. God. God is the hero of this story. God also wants to be the hero of your story, but he's not going to share top billing. God isn't going to allow you to have top billing in your life and be the hero of your story. God wants to be the hero of your story. Jesus wants to be the hero of your story. And if we can humble ourselves and submit to his plan, his will, his design, God is going to create a story, a legacy, a journey in your life that you never dreamed that you could go on, that you would have no ability to go on on your own. But it's God. It's his invisible. It's his powerful. It's his strong, mighty hand at work in the lives of his people. Another thing to take note of in this is that Naomi hears that the Lord has blessed his people in Judah. Now, I think this is significant for us to know because Judah literally means praise. 
Okay, Judah means praise. And so in this situation, Naomi has absolutely no reason to praise. God has taken everything from her. She's in a worse situation than she was 10 years ago when there was a famine in the land of Judah. But there's something inside of her that knows that in the worst of times, she has to return to the land of praise. Now listen, many of us find ourselves in situations where it looks like God is out to get us, where things are going wrong, nothing is going right. If it can, mess up, it will mess up, and we don't understand why we're in this situation. It's in those moments when God seems most distant, it's in those moments when we're the most frustrated with God that we need to return to the land of praise. It's in those moments that I believe praise becomes the key that's going to unlock the blessings of God in our life. And in those moments where we have to decide, are we going to run to God or are we going to run from God, it's praise even when we don't feel like it. It's praise even when looking around we don't feel like we have a reason to praise, but it's praise that is going to unlock the gates of God's blessing on our life. If you remember Paul and Silas in, in jail in the New Testament, they were in chains, they had been beaten and they had been abused and they were surrounded by other prisoners and they begin to sing and praise and when they did, God sends an earthquake and an angel to unlock them, to remove their chains and, and they were essentially set free, but it wasn't until they began to praise that God began to move. Some of you are here today, and you for so long have just crossed your arms and said, I don't want to have anything to do with God. The second you begin to uncross your arms, open your hands towards heaven, and begin to praise God, he's going to pour out blessings on you. In this story, you're going to see in just, or well, you'll see it next week, so come back. There's the, you know, there's the hook, but uh, but you're going to see that the second that she comes back to the land of praise, one day later, one day later, God begins to open up the floodgates of heaven and pour his blessings on this family. Return to the house of praise. Return to the land of praise. There is so much power in that. So much power in that. And so what happens is Naomi decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem, the land of praise, and she's going to take her two Moabite daughters with her. And so they go down this uh, dusty road. They begin to make their way back to Bethlehem. They're talking because that's what women do. They talk, right? I mean, it just goes, I, I mean, Melissa can go to coffee with somebody for 30 minutes and they can have 14 different conversations and like get it all worked out. I, I could spend four hours with a guy golfing and we'll have zero conversations, none. Let's say, what'd you guys talk about? Golf. Like, it, it, the, like the extent of it was nice shot. You know, what'd you get? But, but so these three women, they're walking back to Bethlehem and they're talking. And, and then Naomi basically tells them, look, I have nothing for you. Go back home. You'll see this in verse eight. Naomi says to them, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. Now you have to understand how broken Naomi is and, and, how, uh, and, and just how utterly defeated she is because literally what she's telling Orpah and Naomi, her two daughters-in-law, is go back to Moab, go back to Chemosh, go back to your gods, go find a good Moabite man, begin to worship the destroyer again. Maybe the Lord will be kind to you because he's not kind to me. And so he's asking, she's asking God to be kind to these women and she doesn't really believe that God is kind at this moment. So she's just kind of, you know, I got nothing for you, get out of here. 
And uh, the girls say no, they're going to go to Bethlehem with her. Then she tries to talk them out of it again a second time. Verse 11. She says, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, it's interesting to see who she's blaming for her trouble. She doesn't blame Elimelech, who was the guy whose name meant my God is king, that didn't act like it and took them to Moab, who basically committed spiritual suicide for him and his entire family. She doesn't blame Elimelech. She blames God because she knows that though not everything um, comes from God, not everything, not everything bad that happens is from God, everything has to pass through the hand of God. And so she ultimately blames God for her situation and her circumstance. She says, God is not sweet to her. God is not kind to her. God is mean to her. God, why would you allow this to happen? When Abram was younger, um, my son, uh, he's just little, like three or four years old, we got him, uh, or somebody got him a, a drum set for his birthday. We didn't get him a drum set. Those don't ever come from parents. But somebody got him this drum set. He had a little stool, had the, had the drums and, and the, the, um, the cymbal thing, and he had these little sticks, and he would just rock that thing. I mean, he would play that thing as hard as he could, and he would just go crazy and, and pound it. And I'd tell him all the time, buddy, be careful. You're going to smash your fingers, you know, because the, the rims, if you'd hit it too hard you'd, and you missed, you'd, you'd get your fingers, and it hurt. And I'd, Buddy, be careful. You're going to smash your fingers. And he, he wouldn't care. He'd keep playing really hard. He'd rock out to it. Inevitably, two or three minutes later, he smashes his finger and, and he starts crying and he gets angry and he says, Daddy, it's your fault, right? He blames me, right? I mean, it's not my fault, man. I told you, don't play so hard. You're going to smash your fingers. Then when he hurts himself, he blames me. And, and we think that's silly and, and kind of funny, but we do the exact same thing with God. Listen, we do. We blame God when he allows us to make a mess of things and we hurt ourselves. We say, God, you should have stopped me. God, it's your fault. God, why did you let me do this when you knew I was going to get hurt? Like, look, we want free will. We want to have the choice to move to Moab, but then we get mad at God when we move to Moab and things that happen in Moab happen to us. And, and, and God is like, what do you want me to do? This isn't my fault. I told you. It's a whole lot easier to blame God after the pain than it is to obey God before the pain. Listen, it's a whole lot easier to blame God after we hurt ourselves than to obey God before we do and keep us away from that pain. God says, here are the parameters of a life that I'm going to bless. And it's available to absolutely everyone. But if somebody steps outside of those parameters of the place that God is going to bless and things don't go well or, or their situation goes bad and, and, and they get hurt, is it God's fault? No, because God has set the parameters and says, if you stay within these parameters, then I'll bless you. And, and God sets laws. God sets universal laws that we don't debate. Laws like gravity, and, 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 and they are there, and, and we understand them, but we have a hard time believing that God also sets spiritual and moral laws in place as well, that if we live within the boundaries of the place that he's going to bless, then he will. The Ten Commandments that he gave to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, basically God says, if you live that's this way, you will know a good life. If you do this, if you follow this, then things will go better for you. It doesn't mean that, that everything is going to be perfect. There's still going to be dry times in Bethlehem. But if you live this way, it will go well 
for you. But we get angry. Some of you are here today and you're angry because you feel like God has been mean to you, like he's raised his fist against you, like he's out to get you. The reality is what you've done is you've stepped outside of the parameters of what God is blessing and you're angry that he's not blessing you. Leave Moab. Come back to Bethlehem. That's the place where God blesses. But it's a lot easier to blame God after the pain than it is to obey him before it. Bethlehem in the dry season is way better than Moab. It's always better to stay in Bethlehem. Let's keep going. Verse 14. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Orpah turned and went back to Moab and back to Chemosh, back to the destroyer. And in one last effort, Naomi begs Ruth to follow. Now Ruth begins to speak for the first time, and uh, her, her words are legendary. This is what she says in verse 16. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Many believe that this was Ruth's conversion. This was where she committed her heart to serve Jehovah God. And it's interesting that Ruth has um, more spiritual maturity in this moment than Elimelech, the, the Hebrew that, was, that grew up serving God. She exercises more spiritual maturity in that moment than Elimelech did because what Ruth said is that though I could go back to Moab, though I could find somebody to marry, though I could make much of my life, I, I don't want to go there because that's where they serve the destroyer. I'm going to follow you, I'm going to follow your people, and I'm going to follow your God because I've committed my life to God. I'm going to give him everything. She says, I don't care what the financial situation is. I don't care what the circumstance is. I'm going with God. Those are going to be my people. And she exercises all of this spiritual maturity. Verse 19, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this really Naomi, the woman asked. And so, so picture this. Picture this. Um, Naomi and Ruth walk into Bethlehem. They, they walk down this dirty, dusty road, um, malnourished, tattered clothes, Things have been really hard for really long, and they come sort of limping into Bethlehem. Naomi looks completely different than what she did when they left. And the women there in Bethlehem, they look across the street, and they see Naomi, or what looks like Naomi. And, and they begin to holler out to her. They say, Naomi, is that really you? Naomi, come, let's catch up. Where's Elimelech? Where's the boys? What's going on? Come here, Naomi. And, and there must have been something in, in those, those questions that, that just angered her. Because in that moment, she says, look, don't call me Naomi because God has not been sweet to me. Don't call me Naomi because God's not been nice to me. Call me Mara because I am bitter. Let's read this, verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? And, and she bears her heart. She bears her soul. She says, I'm angry with God. He is not kind. He is not nice. And, and what happens oftentimes when, when people are in Naomi's situation and they bear their soul like that, the people of God don't know how to react. 
If you've ever been in a life group or a Sunday school or had a conversation with somebody, they say, I'm angry with God. He's a jerk. He's mean, you know, and then it's your turn to talk. You're like, I don't know what to say, you know. Because we, we trust in our own Christianese. We, we trust in our own, like, my God is king type statements that we don't really believe. Like, like we're, we're here, and sometimes, you know, the pastor will say, God is good. And then we know all the time, right? We respond all the time. But some of you are sitting here thinking, not to me. No, the pastor says, my God is good. And you're like, well, he's not being good to me. Things are really hard. Things are really difficult. Naomi's bearing her soul, and, and they don't know how to respond. And in fact, we don't see these women responding to her at all. They just disappear from the story. But God is going to send a redeemer, and you're going to see that next week. God's going to overwhelm Naomi and Ruth with just his blessing. You're going to see that. But although Naomi's honesty is refreshing, her perspective is all wrong. It's going to change by the end of the story, but right now she's in a difficult place. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Though Naomi is angry, bitter, resentful, and hopeless, she goes back to the land of praise. She goes back to Bethlehem. She goes back to the people of God, the house of bread. And this is always the first step to a completely restored relationship with God. Return to Bethlehem. Return to Bethlehem. Are you frustrated with God this morning? Return to Bethlehem. Return to that place of blessing. Are you discouraged with your inability to hear God's voice this morning? Return to Bethlehem, the place where God blesses. Are you bitter? because of your circumstances, return to Bethlehem. Are you upset because life has been extremely hard for you? Return to Bethlehem. There's sometimes it's dry in Bethlehem, but come back to Bethlehem. That's the place that God blesses. Step back into the parameters of his blessing. Get back into the house of God. Surround yourself with the people of God. Consume the word of God. Begin to obey the will of God. Step back in to Bethlehem. Because listen, if you put yourself in a position to be blessed, God will bless. And, and, and we can't force God to bless us. We can't manipulate God to bless us. We can't pay for God's blessings. We can't trick God into blessing us. But what we can do is live in the place that God blesses. We can come back to Bethlehem. God wants to help you this morning. In fact, I believe with all of my heart that God is setting things in motion right now to bless you in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. But you have to come back to Bethlehem. See, see, there's this last line in, in verse 22. It says, they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. That seems like a throwaway line. Who cares when they got back to Bethlehem? Well, there's a couple of reasons why that matters. It's because number one, there is now food in the house of bread again. There's now food in Bethlehem, but number two, they arrived in late spring at the beginning of barley harvest because God is going to use the situation uh, tomorrow, right, next week, tomorrow, in, in, during the barley harvest to, to ignite a, a romantic relationship that is going to change Naomi's life forever. And so what God is doing, the moment, listen to this, 
the moment that Naomi began to walk down that dusty road from Moab back to Bethlehem, God begins to orchestrate things and put things in place to overwhelm Naomi and overwhelm Ruth with a blessing that they never even would have thought to ask for. And I believe with all of my heart, those of you who are dwelling in Moab today, if you come back to Bethlehem, you are going to see God begin to orchestrate things that you didn't even know he was up to. He's begin to work things to pour blessing on blessings on your life that are going to blow your mind. Stand your feet all across this place. Will you position yourself within the parameters of God's will? Will you position yourself in that place that God blesses? I want to close with this simple question. I want you to think about this. What if Naomi had stayed in Moab? Think about this. Because she had the choice, she could have stayed. What if Naomi would have stayed in Moab? What if she wouldn't have come back to Bethlehem? Well, then she would have missed barley harvest and they would have missed Boaz she wouldn't have been King David's great-great-grandmother. She would have missed it all. What if she would have stayed in Moab? We wouldn't be talking about Naomi or Ruth today. What if she would have stayed in Moab? Because God started preparing blessings for Naomi. They're just legendary blessings. The second she started coming back. My question for you is what if you stay in Moab? What if you stay where you are? What if you keep doing those things that exist without, out, that exist outside the parameters of God's blessing? What will you miss out on if you stay in Moab? Is God calling you back to Bethlehem? I believe he is. And I believe that for your situation and your circumstance, God, right now, in a realm that you can't even see is preparing blessings that you are going to receive the second you come back to Bethlehem. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. One decision can make all the difference. Will you return to the land of blessing? Will you return to that place that God has prepared for you? Will you return to all that God has for you? Will you step once again into his will for your life? Now, I know that there are some of you here today and, and you'd say, you know what, I, I, you know, you're using Bethlehem as this analogy of God's will and relationship with God. I don't think I've ever been to Bethlehem in the beginning. I've never surrendered my life, my will to God's will. And I think I need to do that today. There are some of you that have been visiting Moab. And it's time to come back. It's time to reject that. There's some of you who have just moved to Moab and you know that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, come on, come back. There's some of you here today who've settled in Moab. And it's time to come back to Bethlehem. It's time to come back to Bethlehem. 
We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.